As you can imagine, we're not going to skip a beat. We have so much to cover still in Luke 15. So take your Bibles and let's look at the 15th chapter of Luke. <clears throat> very, very important that we get back to <clears throat> excuse me, our study of this chapter because we have been in a set of parables whereby Jesus teaches us things about the heart of God regarding the sinner. Sometimes I will hear someone say, you know, God, God can't forgive the sins that I've committed. You know, you hear unbelievers say that. Oh, my sin's too great for him to forgive. And, and it becomes really a fleshly excuse for not addressing the gospel for some. They don't actually listen to the truth of the gospel. They don't actually look to God's word. It's sort of a smokescreen that basically says, in sort of a self-pitying way, I am too bad for God, and I don't really want to hear the details about what he might or might not forgive. <clears throat> and there are other people from whom that statement emerges, and, and it is a genuine heartbroken sorrow because they've been misinformed about our great God and this great truth of his mercy. And in their being misinformed, they have lived a sorrowful, miserable life with the guilt of sin and no hope of being forgiven. This is true, of course, of all false religions eventually, but, but certainly even with those who have heard some semblance of the gospel in this culture, where it has been prolific for so many decades, they live a sort of a sorrow because they imagine that God doesn't want them. They imagine that because they've tried religious experiences and they've tried to snuggle up to, to some church somewhere and, and somebody else who knows Christ, and it's never really stuck. It's never worked for them. They kind of drift into some version of self-pity which is miserable and says, well, I know that God can't forgive me. Again, they're misinformed. And then there are others who, who imagine that if they could just clean up their life, get it to the point where God might take some interest, uh, that might be good too. Sort of the self-atonement idea that somehow you're going to make your life better and, and God's going to take notice of you because after all, he does, he does grade on works and, and uh, the assumption is that human works can supply some merit before God. And so I've, I've had a history of really bad things. And if I could just turn that tide, God may take some interest in me and I might yet experience a little shave of mercy. You have others. We've met many of them in the New Testament for whom God's forgiveness is earned and they believe they've earned it. They are the self-righteous ones who are kept from the gospel by the misery of imagining that sin is defeatable by human strength and sheer self-will and human versions of righteousness. And they live in the delusion that, that God's holiness is somehow going to accept such an offering. The parables that Jesus tells are intended to dispel all of those views, every one of them. Particularly this parable of the prodigal. Now, I don't know what your background is. We've already hit a couple of messages on this topic from Luke 15, but I've already heard from several of you that, well, you know, I grew up, I was the prodigal of my parents. And, and others would say, yes, we, we are praying for a prodigal or two in our family. Others would say, you know, I never really had a prodigal life, so to speak, but I've met a few, or I have a sibling that was one, or the misery of such things came to our front door one day by this relationship or that relationship. We all, to some degree, have been touched by the dynamic of the fallenness of the human condition and the desperate need for forgiveness. And if you're in one of those camps where you say, God can't forgive me, or you're in one of those camps that lives in the misery of misunderstanding this great God that has come in redemption, or if you imagine that you have to clean up your life and you live with the discouragement of never quite measuring up, or if you're here today and you live in the blindness of your own self-righteousness, this parable has some lessons for you. 
It has some lessons for you. Let's just remind ourselves where we are. You remember very familiar parable. I won't belabor the point, but you have this story of two sons. The younger of them said to his father, you remember in our study, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. So that was an astonishing response on the part of the father, and the son's request was offensive. Not many days later, verse 13, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. We saw that. He, he burned all of his bridges for a mere pittance, sold everything he could liquidate as fast as he could according to the way the culture would have worked. That would have been the understanding in the parable. And he went far away from accountability. That is intended by the way Jesus tells the story. And he spends every cent, squanders every dime in reckless abandon. He, he lived loosely. That must have included every particular vice that would be germane to such scenarios. Drunkenness, anti-authority rants, and living against uh, legal rules or outside the rules. Reckless living involves carousing, according to the New Testament. Probably... Uh, the story is intended to imply that he was with the lowest of the low of society, maybe even the criminal element, and of course, the inevitable degradation of morals, immorality. But the lifestyle had an inevitable end. When he had spent everything, verse 14, a severe famine occurred in that country. You know, I love the way Jesus just piles it on. Uh, when everything's going terrible for you and you've lost it all, then life itself uh, seems to kick you when you're down. A severe famine, so that the son began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Nobody was hiring, really. No, none of the folks with food in a severe famine would do anything but batten down the hatches and save everything they have. They wouldn't be hiring out, but it says this young man attached himself and held on. And so the least that could be done is he could be protected from the criminal elements outside of an estate. And so he was put on the man's property in the worst of circumstances. Verse 15 says he sent this young man into his fields to feed the swine. So sin had consumed him, and it never says enough, as we saw, then the unfortunate calamities which add to the misery Jesus then attaches to the parable. The kid ends up jobless, penniless, and a homeless beggar, and he's put into a field somewhere away from the main house. The pigs were eating the, the last that could survive a famine, little pods on a, on a tree or a bush. They live in a mud hole, the only water that might have been around at the time. And this son was left in that condition. There would have been the imagery of the stench of pigs in their mud and the scraps and the leftover garbage collected from the main house. A few of these carob pods thrown in. Verse 16 says he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. So he was even battling these pigs for the scraps, according to the story. And None of the attendants who brought the scraps, of course, Jesus implies, none of them gave him any food either. They didn't put it in front of him. So the parable tells it like it is in, in every situation where the human heart will not be humbled by a kind and gracious creator who offers them hope and peace. And we saw this in our last study. Every sinner who decides they're going to rule themselves, every prodigal who goes after that way of life, finds out that it never delivers on its promises. Sin never satisfies. And where we might imagine that from a human standpoint, you end up having everything you wanted in this life, the treasures that the world looks for, at the latter end of such things, everyone who lives for themselves in that way, they forfeit the greatest gift of all, the eternal soul. They forfeit their eternity with a forgiving God. If a person's resources mask the, the degradation for a time, their desperation, be sure of it, will soon show up. 
time and truth always go together. And so they're intending to, to see, their, the intention is for their circumstances to teach them to see their need for a savior, to become desperate, to reach out, because God is a merciful God. The intention of the parable is to, to demonstrate to the crowd that they ought to feel the full effects of the miserable conditions that come from pursuing a life apart from God, apart from his best, apart from his plan, as a pattern of life, to reject God and to harden. It is God's intention to show them that that only brings misery, the kind of misery which in and of itself can be a grace to show you your spiritual need. And so many even turn against it. And so we saw that. Here is the son. He's at the end of it. Came into town, living it up. He was a high roller. He had all this initial money. He plunged himself into every kind of vice at the lowest level. According to the story, the implication is that in a short time, he blew it all in wicked company. He spent it all in foolish ways. These were the things that brought him temporary pleasure but like sand slipped through his fingers. And so here he is, abandoned, without money, nowhere to go, in a land filled with starvation. He has none of the things that he dreamed of. He was promised by his flesh and the world and the devil freedom, and he only got bondage. And it's in that particular state that something happens. What a mercy. Look at this in verse 17. But when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. He came to his senses. Literally, unto himself he came, or back into right thinking, back into a right perspective. Some people read this and, and note what he says. I'm going to get up and go to my father and say to him, look, I, 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 I'm no longer worthy, verse 19. Make me one of your hired servants. Some people think, well, he, he kind of looked at things practically and he finally decided to make a better choice. You know how people do that. They sort of dress up their own life. I'm going to clean it up. I'm going to make better choices. That's all he was doing, some will say. I'm going to go back home and I'm going to ask for opportunities to make formal restitution so that I can get back in the good graces of my family and the estate. But look, Jesus is not telling this parable to encourage self-help. He's trying to tell this parable to destroy it. He's not telling this parable as a sort of how to make atonement for your own mistakes kind of tale. He's trying to destroy the idea that you could ever make atonement for your own mistakes. Yes, it does involve a change, a practical change, but that cannot happen until someone has been brought to their senses. In the story, the son hadn't been sensible. He hadn't been sensible about anything, the implications of his sin or its consequences. And now he's coming to himself about these things. So this isn't a parable about self-help. It's not a parable about clean up your life. It isn't a parable about self-atonement. It isn't even a parable about saying, well, God can't really forgive me. It's not a parable about that. It's a parable about true repentance and the undeserved mercy of God upon miserable sinners. And it's a parable largely directed at self-righteous Pharisees who are standing around listening to it, who would be shocked by the story, hopefully enough to see their own arrogance and their own blindness to the grace and mercy of God. That is the point. By this time in the story, the Pharisees would have already judged this son as an outcast. Absolutely. Who is this kid in your story? He's done. He's an outcast. Certainly he will never be able to receive mercy from his father or his family or the people of his home village or anyone else who learns what he did. This is scandalous. That is the way this story has to unfold, or so it seems the Pharisees would assume. And it aligned perfectly with their view of moral and spiritual realities. The self-righteous person sees it that way. 
At this, way, at this point, there's no way the son could atone for his reckless abandon of all that is righteous. But they, the Pharisees, having avoided that life, have done so. From their perspective, no mercy should be offered. No abiding love and care, only shame. The, the shame that this son brought on his family should be put back on him The disgrace that he brought on his father, he should have to live with tenfold. Jesus tells this in their hearing to teach them about their own blindness to the kind of God that is there and that does redeem God is a lover of pouring out grace and mercy upon sinners, especially when those sinners are in their darkest times. Listen, beloved, if you've prayed for a prodigal or, or you know a prodigal or you know someone who says God cannot forgive my sin, you should have the biggest smile on your face at what you're about to tell them. You should. Of course sin is miserable. Of course its consequences are devastating. Of course, to, to human beings who live on a horizontal level, anybody else's lifestyle of sin, which affects me, splashes on us and is deeply painful and scarring. But these things would be nothing if there were, in fact, divine forgiveness. God is rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, 4 says. And he uses a sinner's consequences and darkest times, to draw that sinner to himself. He alone is able to meet us in our most worst circumstances, our most dire straits, and begin to use all of that to prepare us for a a 180, divinely empowered. Notice what happens here as repentance begins to do its work as it begins to show up in the heart of this son. Verse 17, notice the end of verse 17. But I am dying here with hunger. Listen, the first thing that must happen is you must see the consequences of your sin and it must crush your pride. In that statement, he begins to look around him and his misery crushes his pride. I came here living it up. I now have nothing And it's at my doing. Sin's misery should crush pride. In fact, God allows consequences in a prodigal's life. God allows consequences in the sinner's life to soften that hardened ground, to turn over that fallow ground of the heart. Why? So that we become desperate enough to cry out for help. I've told you before, my wife and I prayed for our kids. Lord, do whatever it takes to save them. Do you know that was a frightening prayer? Because I could imagine they could live an entire life of prodigalism. And maybe, just maybe, though God would not have to, he'd be just not to, maybe on their deathbed somewhere, he would let the consequences and misery of their sin be having the effect as it had with the thief on the cross who saw his misery and softened. Maybe. God is merciful like that. Oh, I know we pray for our prodigal children and we want it to happen now because we don't want to see those scars. And some of it's because we love our kids and don't want them to have to go through it. And some of it's just our own pain. I don't want to have the embarrassment of a wayward child. I don't want the embarrassment and pain and agony of having to watch them go through that. But look, look, God does his work through consequences. I'm not saying you pray for scars. I'm saying, Lord, please minimize those scars. But I'm saying, Lord, use them, use them to teach them that they must be crushed in their pride. See, how far does that mean they'll go? As far as it takes. Some of us, that took a while because the hardness of heart was there and consequences we ignored and circumstances we didn't pay attention to. He says, I'm dying here with hunger. Sin and its misery is beginning to crush his pride. And then notice he starts to reflect on grace, which softens the spirit of a sinner. 
Notice verse 17, how many of my father's men have more than enough bread? That's right. That's how God works. In our misery, God turns our minds by his kindness to sin's consequences, from sin's consequences to all of the expressions of grace and mercy we've experienced along the way. Look, if you're in the middle of your misery, are you still breathing? Look, if you die in your sin because of your own consequences, there is no hope. But if you're still breathing... And the Lord begins to cause you to reflect on that grandmother who faithfully prayed and those parents who were patient and those friends who have called you back again and again and those people who've loved you over and over. This is what the young man begins to experience. Wait a minute. Let me think on what life was like. I always saw my life as stifled, the prodigal things. I always saw my life as as being restrained from the sense of adventure and, and it was unnecessarily hemmed in by, by oppressive parents who, and loved ones and friends and authorities that didn't want me to have fun. The prodigal doesn't see the love and the grace and the kindness and the watch care hovering over them as they grow up in a home discovering their world. And they don't recognize the multiplied times they should have been in far worse circumstances, far more dire straits, but God was preserving their souls because he had indeed blessed them with many graces along the way. They don't, we don't see that. Isn't that just like sin? We don't see the common graces of God. We don't see the special, wonderful graces of God as the gospel is shared with us. And, and even after we come to Christ, we, we launch out into some pattern of sin and we don't see the mercies of God all around us in and through it. We don't pay attention to it. And God begins to use the memory of past kindnesses to soften the hardened heart. This son looked back on his upbringing, particularly his father's way of life. And he noted some things. His father is kind. His father is kind and faithful to others who weren't even family members. He didn't play favorites with kindness. He, he, he doled out love and care to all those who worked on his estate, from his children all the way down to the one out at the outer edges without any privilege. And the son said it. How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? And notice what he says in verse 19, or verse 18, I'll get up and go to my father. He's also reflecting on his father as a person. And look, in the ancient world, the whole point of this is how disgraceful this son has been. And so he must have known that he would not receive any mercy if he went back into the village, back to the estate, back to his sibling, and back to his dad. He would have thought, I'm an outcast, I'm cut off, I'll never get back in. But here he says, I'm going to go to my father. That is, that is true repentance beginning to work in his heart because he is reflecting upon his father's life. And he seems to know something about his dad, that going back and pleading with his dad to, to make him a basic laborer at the estate will at least be considered. There's a common grace. You're still alive. He must know that if he comes into town, even if it's, even if it's that he has to pay a dear price with his reputation and his future for having sinned the way he did, he at least has some notion that his father will consider him. He's reflecting in his, in his misery and his consequences, which are crushing his pride, he's reflecting on these graces. Look, that is the beginning of a work of true repentance. See, the Pharisees don't see it that way. They're listening to this story and they're expecting a full-on punishment, an absolute public disgrace, and a disownment, and Years, if not a lifetime, of hard restitution. You're not a part of our family. We don't recognize you. And oh, by the way, you're going to pay. That's what they would have thought. And Jesus just shocks them. The son is reflecting on his father's character. He, he knows his dad to be a fair man, a just man, a thoughtful man. And a willing man to help even, even the lowest of the low, shattered lives, 
maybe even of a foolish son. He's being drawn to the kindness of God and the common graces. And notice also, sorrow begins to work repentance, genuine repentance. Verse 18, I'll get up and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. So what you have here is this wonderful working of genuine godly repentance deep within the heart. This is the new resolve of a broken heart ready to own his sin. And in owning his sin, he's ready to indict his own heart in it. This is who I was. This is who I am. It is my motives, my selfishness, my heart that wanted what I wanted. And I did it and at the expense of everything that was good and right. I'm ready to call it what it is. Call it what my father would call it, what my family would call it, what our community would call it. And I'm going to embrace the consequences. I'm going to fully embrace consequences because I understand what sin proves, that we're not worthy of a privileged status of belonging. He says it. I'm not worthy to be in your family. I know that sin separates me from belonging where I'm designed to belong. You could just lay this out, really, as the steps of, and evidences of any true moment of repentance. You could lay it out like that. He faced and embraced the shame. I will get up and go to my father. That is, that is embracing the shame. He's got to go into that place and he is going to be considered as he was when he left, a reckless son, disgracing his family, cutting himself off. He says, I'm going to face that. Look, every true work of repentance in the heart begins to show evidence in embryonic form of that. I'm willing to face the disgrace I caused. Secondly, notice he says, I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Look, I'm going to own the full weight of it as defined by truth. Here's what sin is. No excuses. No minimizing. Look, a true work of repentance that is beginning to happen in the heart begins to manifest itself in a kind of confession that is specific and that owns the full weight of it. Yes, I am guilty. This is why sometimes we have so much trouble changing in an area of our life, because our repentances don't even involve these first two steps. We want to change our life and stop a sin, but when we go to confess it and disown it, when we go to forsake it, we're not facing and embracing the shame that we ought to sense in it. Why? Because we're running from from sort of false notions of shame in this culture all the time. Oh, no one should ever feel any moment of shame, really? Look, guilt before God is a fact. You either are guilty or you are not, and sin has shame attached to it. So if you have been sinning and you go before God to confess it, you should feel shame. You should sense it. I've been shameful. There's nothing bad about saying that. It's actually a manifestation of genuine repentance. And you should own the full weight of it. Notice he also sees himself rightly. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Undeserving of mercy or privilege. I don't deserve mercy or privilege. That, that's genuine repentance right there. That's godly sorrow. Someone who's a false repenter is constantly trying to save face, constantly trying to maintain some sense of their privilege and their worthiness. Look, I'm sorry I made a few mistakes. I'm sorry I made some bad choices, but, 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 but. We just go on and on with a list of reasons why I had to do that, and I must have done that. I couldn't have done any different, and I, I'm innocent in my motives. I mean, we do this. We do this as a habit. We get very good at it. And before you came to Christ, that's what you did. You never faced and embraced the shame. You never owned the full weight of sin's guilt and defined it as God defined it. You never saw yourself as undeserving of mercy. In fact, a God who says he doesn't accept your good works, what kind of God is that? 
I don't want to worship a God who doesn't accept someone who lays their life down completely for other people in a good work, and, and that's not meritorious before God. What kind of God is that? You know what you're doing right there? All you're doing is seeing yourself wrongly. To see yourself rightly is to say, my sin separates me from God and his family. I am not worthy to belong, and I deserve no privileges. That's a work of genuine repentance. And he's there. This son is there. And he accepts the just penalty anyway, even though he knows it's not atonement. He can't atone for his own sin. But notice, he says, make me as one of your hired men. I accept the just penalty. There are the four evidences, essentially, that you, you could look for in a genuine sorrow over sin in your life or particularly in conversion when an unbeliever is coming to Christ. That's what I look for. When someone says, I, I came to Jesus, I want to see a life like this. Tell me about how you came to Christ. Well, I, I faced the shame and embraced it, the shame of my life. I, I'm, I'm full of it. I'm full of sin that brings disgrace and shame, and it's all mine. And I'm owning the full weight of the guilt of it. I've sinned against heaven and in, in the sight of all those who I knew better not to sin in front of. And David said the same thing in Psalm 51. I, I've done this great evil in your sight, O God, and against you and you only. You're the one that defines it. And then I, listen, for whether a person added Jesus to their already worthy life or whether they see themselves as un, unprivileged, undeserving, and not belonging, that God has to bring us into the family. Here is the blooming flower of genuine godly sorrow. Make me as one of your hired men. I accept the just penalty. That is the New Testament on repentance. Your perspective changes. We've talked about repentance before. According to the Old and New Testament terms, your, your perspective changes. There's that aspect of it. It's a change of view that recognizes sin as involving personal guilt, our defilement, and our helplessness to change it. That is what genuine repentance admits. And then there's the grief aspect of it. There's this change in our gut-level, visceral experience of it. I am sorrowful. I, I'm not talking about the amount of tears you might shed or the visible aspects of sorrow. I'm talking about deep within a grief that you have you've been a, an offense to a loving and gracious God. A bitterness of, of a sorrowful kind comes into the repentant person. I'm bitter at myself. It's such a bitter and terrible thing to have been given so much kindness by God and to trample it. It's heartaching. Sin is grief. And then there's the conviction aspect. You have the perspective change, the grief aspect and then the conviction aspect that is to say your beliefs change i i know this i'm hopeless and helpless god is the only one that can rescue me i turn to him alone that is my new conviction it is my only conviction there is where i rest lord you must save me i bring nothing of myself that's godly sorrow that's what second corinthians 7 8 through 11 describes, behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of the matter. In other words, you, you, there's such a 180 in your life, it vindicates the genuineness of what you claim, that I'm really sorry, God. What avenging of wrong. What hatred of sin. What fear and reverence. What longing and what zeal to demonstrate that it's genuine change. All the Pharisees in this, at this moment in the story would have been incensed, surely, because at this point they'd be, they'd be licking their chops at the thought of the son getting the door of mercy slammed in his face. That's what they want. They, the self-righteous person loves to stand over people who are broken and to look down on their sinful misery and gloat and to gloat about how they were so above all that. But see, true brokenness 
has nothing to do with that. That self-righteous standing over people, in their minds, not only did this boy deserve to be shattered and shamed and disgraced and disowned, but in fact, he doesn't deserve forgiveness, not even a little. Listen, beloved. Verse 20 is so, so rich. Mercy comes running. You've seen how mercy turns to hope in the heart of this son. Now mercy comes running. Verse 20, so he got up and he came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He felt compassion for him and, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. What is this? The son's genuine repentance bears fruit. He got up. What he said he was going to do, he did it. What his heart wanted to do, his will followed. It's genuine. He doesn't deserve anything. He's hoping there will be mercy for him. He'll own the disgrace, take it all on himself, and absolutely declare that he's, he deserves everything he gets. It's fully warranted. He even wants to ask to be one of the hired servants. He's got to go through some things. Notice he endures the village. He got up and came to his father. Well, in the story, he hadn't actually reached his father's estate yet. He'd still have to come into the village. And, and ostensibly, if the story were to unfold in some real way, he'd have to endure the disgrace of the village. Everyone hearing this parable would have in their minds a kid coming in as a filthy mess. He has no money. He can't go get cleaned up. He can't clean up his clothes. Everything about his appearance would have made it clear that he was destitute and unhealthy. If you're in the crowd, you're hearing this story, you're thinking, man, he has to pass by all those fellow villagers he disowned for his own pleasure. He's got to pass by all of them. And he has to get cleaned up somehow to make a formal inquiry at the property of his father. Someone is going to have to deliver the news to his father that he's in the village, and then he'll have to wait for his father to say whether he'll talk to him or not. Surely as the story unfolds, if his dad is willing to talk to him, it'll no doubt be very formal, very protected of the estate and the father in front of those he abandoned, including his brother. And he'd have to endure the shame of all that. That is what goes on in the mind of the crowd. But look at verse 20. His shame is borne by another. While he was a long way off, his father saw him and out of compassion ran and embraced him and kissed him. Look, this is the point right here directly targeting the Pharisees. Listen, when you think about God, you think about him in the wrong way. You think that sinners have to climb their way to God and anybody who slightly flinches in terms of righteousness gets tossed aside. God never forgives. That's like you. You men never forgive. You people don't forgive because you're self-righteous. God loves mercy and he longs to be merciful. And the story is intended to illustrate that God is looking each day to redeem like this father who's looking each day for his son and he's longing to be reconciled. You who have prodigals, you don't, you do not, if you have the heart of God, you do not ignore this. If you have the heart of God, you're longing. Just let me hear that door. Just let me see them in the driveway. He's longing to be reconciled. This is God. He simply can't wait to pour out mercy upon a broken life. You think you've sinned too greatly for God? You think you're too far gone? How would you know if you've never done what this son did? Soften and run to God. Psalm 37, 26, all day long he is gracious. And you know what? In Israel's case, they stiff-armed him all the time, generation after generation. And you know what Isaiah said in 65 too? I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. Wow! God spreads out his hands to even rebels. 
generationally. We sang it earlier from Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and weighed down with sin, heavily burdened. Jesus said, I'll give you rest. What the Pharisees would never offer, because in their minds it's not deserved, and by their judgment could never be given. This father offers it every day because he longs to express it on his son. Prophet Isaiah said, listen, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come. Buy and eat without money and without cost. That's how God offers it. The cost is on him. You say, what do you mean? Well, look, this father ran to the son. Look, there have been dozens of wonderful scholarly works written on this parable Every single one of them is consistent that in the ancient world, this would be bizarre, if not disgraceful. What the father did here was highly offensive in the culture at the time. Patriarchs walked everywhere. They did not run unless their life was threatened. They carried themselves with the air of dignity commensurate with their age and their station in life. You just didn't do this, let alone to a rebel son. Your experience, your wisdom, your accomplishment. Moreover, your steady, responsible life. If a son did this to you, no self-respecting father would, would do anything but stay in the estate. And if the son got a message to the father, he might make a formal opportunity for the son to say whatever he wants to say. That would have been normal in this culture. There was a profound dignity in those cultures attached to years of experience. And there was therefore a deep sense of honor that goes with it. Conversely, when that dignity is shamed somehow, the disgrace then elevates. It becomes palpable. What you'd expect here is for this jilted father to refuse to see the son. Or wait until the son has done all he can to reverse the shame and disgrace. The father doesn't even want to come out of the estate, or so we would assume. And all the Pharisees would glory in that. Jesus tells the story to shock them, because Jesus portrays the father as doing things that do not bring more shame on the son, but bring shame on the father. The son has disgraced the father, the son has shamed the father, and the father takes the son's shame and disgrace on himself to get to the Son. This absolutely explodes the pride of the Pharisees. God offers forgiveness and will take your shame upon himself to redeem you. This is why you cannot say, I've sinned in such a way that God cannot forgive. Look, he will take the shame upon himself of your sin to redeem you. If you want to wear your shame, yeah, there's no hope. But you don't have to wear your shame. You just come to him because mercy is running to you. God loves to forgive. God is merciful. We read it earlier in the text. God is a merciful God. He even reaches out all day long to rebels. At one point in the end, hearts will harden and God will demonstrate just how much bondage sin has inherent within it. If you come tonight to the study of Revelation, that's what will absolutely shock you as God demonstrates just how devastating and hardening against his love and mercy sin can be. But here in this parable, the picture is so heartwarming, so, so devastating to pride, so powerful and emotional. The father runs to the son? Yes. And not only that, it's because he had compassion for him. What? Compassion? Given what that kid did? That's right. 
We don't understand that kind of compassion in our flesh, do we? In our flesh, we, don't, we just don't grasp that. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. You insult me in my life, you disgrace and shame me, I'm going to disgrace and shame you. You've got to feel what I feel. You've got to feel what you did to me. It's the only way I can protect myself from being shamed. But the Spirit teaches such a profound wonder that the God who redeems us was willing to bear our shame. This parable Jesus told to the crowd to crush self-righteousness and draw men to himself, knowing full well when he told it that he's illustrating his own role in our redemption, his own work, that on the cross he would take the sinner's guilt upon himself. Even though our sin shames him and disgraces our creator, he will take that shame upon himself and pay its ultimate price. He'll be rejected by holiness. He'll be rejected by his father. So profound here. By God's own hand, forgiveness comes as shame is taken away by him taking it on himself as our substitute in our place. Well, the son does say what he wanted to say. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. <laughs> and he was wanting to go on and say what else he'd rehearsed. Make me one of your hired men. The father didn't even let him finish. Verse 22. He said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. He didn't even let his son get to the place where he was willing to say, I know I don't belong in the family. I'm outside. The father had already had it planned. When he ran to him, he had forgiven him. When he ran to him, he'd lavished his grace on him. When he ran to him, he was already planning with his slaves, get the stuff. He's in. He's in the family, restored. He's my son. Did it cost the father? Everything. It cost him everything because... There surely would be many Pharisees watching, many unforgiving people watching, many unbelievers watching, and many snobs, spiritual snobs, who think that they don't need God's forgiveness on a daily basis. They surely would say, this is shameful behavior. That the father would take that boy back into his home and endure that shame and forgive him? And then... Act like it never happened? Celebrating? The only remembrance of it happening is that now there's grace that's poured out on it? That's right. Listen, beloved, God can forgive your sin. He wants to forgive your sin. You just need to come to him in genuine repentance. There's no cleaning up your life before you come either. I mean, you could try to do that. It won't do any good. You can come to Jesus with better morals or you can come to Jesus without all those things. If you come in true repentance, you'll find out none of those other things matter because only the righteous covering of Christ and the perfect payment for sin through him where he bears our shame and our guilt, only through that means do we find sonship. If you're here and you're a prodigal today, don't wait. Mercy has come running to you, even in this text. And if you are already a believer, you know this truth. But maybe you're hiding or holding something. Go back to God. Run to him. He's already on his way to you. Working through consequences, reflections of his kindness to draw us to walk with him faithfully. Bow with me. Father, we know there is 
even still a much more shocking response about to be studied in this parable. But you've already stunned us with the profundity of this story. Lord, I pray that we would learn that you're a forgiving God and a merciful God and you seek the sinner and you use our consequences to soften us. You, you bring to our minds the reflections of your grace in helps and prayers and people and blessings and even truth shared with us. And when we're crushed in our pride from the misery of our guilt and when we're brought to the place where we reflect upon the fact that we're still alive and how many ways you have been gracious. May it do its work in us to draw us to you, not in self-atonement, not in self-help, and certainly not in self-pity, but just to come to you and throw ourselves on your kindness and mercy and learn just what a lavish and forgiving God you are and that you'll cover our guilt and that you, by your power, will transform us into Christ's likeness and we'll actually begin to see sin reduced in our lives and righteousness increased, not for our merit, but, but as worship to you and as a sign of your love for us. May we learn these lessons well, even as we study these great lessons Jesus gives in the parable. And Lord, if there is someone who has tried to merit their own salvation, I pray that you've targeted that with this wonderful tale. And that person would not harden but repent. We ask these things in your kind and compassionate name. Amen.